2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Form podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, Max. What's on the show this week? My guest today is Mona Chalabi. Mona is uh, a ton of things. She's a journalist. Uh, she's an artist. She's writing a book. She's working on a TV show. She's worked at 538 and The Guardian. She's written for tons of places. You guys probably know her best for her data visualizations. She's got this like great distinctive hand-drawn style. She won a Pulitzer this year for a reported illustrated piece she did in the New York Times Magazine about uh, Jeff Bezos' wealth. I love her stuff. She did some illustrations of data actually for a podcast that I worked on a few years ago called Running From Cops. I feel like she's the only person I've ever seen like a data chart and been like, I got to look up who made this data chart. She's one of uh, the the few and illustrious like uh, name data journalists uh, out there. I've actually several times I've been like, that is just an incredible display. Uh, put this in the uh, the Edward Tufty book of the future. My dad was a big Edward Tufty uh, guy. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going astray astray there, but I, I also enjoy her work. Yeah, it's um, it's great, and it, it is. It's like journalism and art, you know. And in a normal episode, that's what I would have talked to her about, you know, all this varied work she does, how she balances journalism and art, how she found that style, Aaron, that you're talking about. But this isn't a uh, normal episode, and I want to give a little context for the conversation you're about to hear. So, Mona has spent the last several weeks putting the rest of that work the book, the TV show, on hold to focus on covering Israel and Palestine. We recorded this uh, in person at her apartment. And when we started, I kind of thought we could still do a traditional long form episode, you know, where I talked to her about her career and her work and also the work she's doing right now. But after we hit record, as we started talking, it became clear that those questions I was asking about how she got her start and how she does her work, they weren't the questions that were on her mind. What she was talking about was this current moment, and I wasn't meeting her where she was. And uh, so I asked that we start over and just talk about her experience as a journalist and her experience of journalism right now, which is a really important conversation. And so that's the conversation you're going to hear, this restart and one that's focused on Israel and Palestine and how it's being covered and who's covering it. And I have one more thing uh, that I want to say, which is by the time we had restarted, it had been like two hours since I had got to Mona's house. Uh, Usually, you know, that's like uh, well well after we're wrapping up and uh, in some ways, she and I were just 
getting started. And she was really generous with me and with her time. And I think that's because, as you'll hear, uh, this was a conversation that she really wanted to have. And I'm glad we did. These episodes are brought to you in partnership with Vox, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Mona Chalabi. Hi, Mona. Hi, Max. Uh, we should acknowledge we've been sitting here for a little while. Some of it without recording, some of it with recording. Mm-hmm. But we're starting fresh. Yeah. And we're starting fresh for many reasons. Uh, but one of them is, and maybe the main one is, that I would love to have a long conversation with you about data journalism mm-hmm. and your path in it and your process for making these incredible pieces and how you balance being a journalist and an artist and your TV show and the book you're writing and all of the stuff that in a normal episode of this podcast, we would talk about. Mm -hmm. But I think for you, this moment of being a journalist is different than other times that we would have talked. Absolutely. So having half that conversation was starting to feel, I don't know, a little off or Mm -hmm. disingenuous or something. So here we are again. Mm Old friends at this point. Old friends. We kind of are old friends at this point. <laughs> How is this moment for you being a journalist? It's difficult. It's difficult because I'm witnessing a lot of Arab journalists be sidelined and censored and non-Arab journalists as well. It's difficult because I think that there are penalties to reporting on Palestine, professional repercussions to doing so. And it's also difficult on a personal basis. Like I'm starting to understand why a little bit better. I mean, I already knew this, but you know, the way that Ukraine was reported on felt so different to me in some ways. And it is just the fact that a lot of the white reporters who were reporting on that felt differently because they were witnessing white victims. And I think that in addition to the regular racism that happens in so many newsrooms where like Arab deaths just don't feel the same. The, the flip side of that is that as an Arab myself, you know, I'm witnessing videos of genocide, but they have a different kind of proximity when the language that people are talking to the cameras is a language that I understand. The clothes that people are wearing is clothing that is familiar to me. You know, these are the first sights, sounds and smells that I like heard, you know. So I also think that we're experiencing a lot of grief while we're trying to do our jobs as well, which is tough. How do you balance that? It's hard, you know, because unfortunately, most press, I would say, is doing a very, very bad job of reporting on this. So a lot of the information that I am seeing and consuming is on social media, where it is incredibly jarring. Like literally, I could open up my Instagram right now and do it. Look, let's just like literally give a very, very specific example, right? So I'm opening up my Instagram the first thing was Loki, who is an Iraqi rapper actually based in the UK, who I follow. I interviewed him for GQ and he's posted an illustration of a missile that Israel has used to kill people, um, kill children. Then there's a Middle East Eye post about Elon Musk. Wow. Talking about genocide. Elon, interesting. A video of a child who has clearly experienced like severe injuries And then like a promoted post 
of someone promoting Macy's. Like, it's that that I find really distressing as you see me scrolling. It's requiring us to have a kind of mental agility and also an emotional agility that is moving far faster than most humans are capable of. To switch gears between like being shown a nice sweater and Mm -hmm. seeing a child dying is a lot. So to answer your question about how I'm doing it, I have found it especially important right now to surround myself with other journalists with whom I feel safe that our conversation can happen at a different place, right? So for example, we're not having to defend our right to be upset. That feels like that's part of what is getting questioned is your very right to be upset about what you're witnessing. And so it has felt really, really good to find myself in certain spaces with other journalists who also feel very upset about what they are witnessing and equally upset about their inability to speak freely on it. Mm-hmm. So like when you were asking me about like, you know, how does it feel in this moment? I've been reflecting a lot on cancel culture and I feel like watching the Jasmine Hughes, the Samira Nasas, the Eamon Mohyaldeen's be pushed aside, that's cancel culture, right? That's cancel culture. Whereas so much of what gets held up as cancel culture is people actually in huge positions of power saying something that is punching down and then being punished for it. And so I'm just thinking about like what cancel culture means right now. Do you feel like you can speak freely? Yes and no. So I can speak very freely on my own platform with professional penalties that come with that. So losing out on future work, um, losing out on professional relationships as well. I, uh, you know, I've kind of, it's been interesting to see who has unfollowed me in recent months. And yeah, so there are penalties, but they're penalties that I'm very much willing, willing to incur and also able to incur because I have more financial security now than I did 10 years ago, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. And the book that I'm writing, by the way, is all about money and about how we're not transparent about it and how people are always doing this weird dance. So I want to be really, really transparent with um, the people that are listening to this. I do have financial security now, which means that is less of a risk. Like I can afford to burn a few bridges. Um, There's still a reputational risk to it. I am still worried about the long-term future of my career. I'm trying to think about the right way to articulate this. It's almost like... I so desperately want to live in a future where your credibility is not questioned for you saying that you are witnessing a genocide in in Gaza, for you saying that Palestinians deserve human rights. And I'm worried that we're not there yet. It's also protecting myself, right, to continue doing this work that is is shifting what is normalised and is shifting that it's okay to say these things. It's okay, I believe, to protest as a journalist. I have to keep on doing it for myself as well as because I believe in it. Do you see what I mean? Like, that's also going to secure my my future. It's the future you want to see for the world and the future that's going to allow you to do your work. That's exactly it. It's the future that I want to see for the world. And it's the future that's hopefully going to ultimately result in me getting paid again one day. Do you feel more optimistic about that possibility Mm. now over the last several weeks or less? It's complicated. On the one hand... I'm like, what the hell is happening? Bjork is posting maps of historic Palestine. There's kafiyas in store windows. There's Palestinian music playing in stores. Like people who I never imagined would ever, ever, ever 
speak up on this are saying something. I've heard the word Zionism more in the past month than I have my entire life. Like, that makes me feel optimistic, right? That people have a different vocabulary now, even like understanding the way that actually indigeneity is a part of understanding this conflict, right? And if you sympathise with violence committed against Native Americans, there is a parallel with what is happening against Palestinians right now. That makes me really, really hopeful. I do feel like we have seen moments of this before, never with the same magnitude and never, you know, they've never lasted as long or been as loud, but the lid has kind of gone back on and there has been some kind of reversion back to the norm. And so I think a lot of us feel this sense of like urgency of like, how long are people going to look at this for before they start to look away? And how, how long can I continue to like write about this before people want to like change the channel, you know? Um, and how does that impact the choices that you're making around how to spend your time right now and what work to do? And yeah, I think it feels really urgent. Journalism feels really urgent and questioning journalism feels really urgent. And um, I've like, I've pushed everything else off of my table, which unfortunately is also all my paid work. And it feels like this is what I need to be doing day in, day out again. You know, I was supposed to go away on vacation. You know, we were trying to set up this interview and I was going to go away and I just cut it short because A, it, it felt so... I mean, you just saw what I showed you on Instagram to be lying down under the sun and looking at that felt like such a disconnect. But also I feel this sense of like, okay, time is running out. Time is running out both in terms of like the international community doing anything, like people are dying every single day. But also time is running out in terms of people's attention spans. And that has always been a preoccupation of mine in journalism. You know this, um, you know, this expression, maybe it's actually called something different in US journalism. Do you know this expression bounces? Yeah, it's like people who uh, jump off a page in less than three seconds. Exactly, exactly, right? And balances are a really big problem when it comes to data journalism, right? Because actually very often what you're looking at is quite complex and quite overwhelming. And so I've always felt this preoccupation of how can I get you to look, to want to look and to want to stay looking at something. And I think it's really hard because a lot of my tools for doing that have been playing with this idea of levity, right? Like very often there's this kind of levity or humor in my work and there's no space for that now. It's not right. Like there's, there's no space for it. And actually I'm thinking about how levity is potentially quite dangerous. So all of which, again, to come back to a question, makes my job really, really hard. I don't know. I don't know, Max. I'm just going to keep on doing it and just keep on trying to get it right. It's really hard, actually, because I don't have an... When I'm creating the illustrations I'm posting on Instagram, it's just me. It's just me. And I'm so terrified of being wrong. It's a real risk. Because you don't have, like, a fact-checking apparatus? No, no. But and when that... I'm hired freelance, very often I'm asked to fact-check myself because there isn't, like, a sufficiently large data journalism team. And it's one of the reasons why, by the way, I've loved working with the New York Times is because they're so rigorous that I'm like, cool, 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 cool. People have my back, you know? Right. Do you think that journalism can be a form of protest? Absolutely. I kind of think of protest as just saying what you believe. And sometimes... It's considered protest because it's outside of the institutions of power. So you're saying, hey, Palestinians deserve human rights, and that's considered a form of protest, right? I want the work to change things. And I think I'm quite unapologetic about that. And I think most journalists are like, no, 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 no. We're just reporting the world. We're just reporting things as we see it. There's no desire for change. I think that is so messed up. This idea that your work has no impact in the world is 
incorrect. You can't wash yourself of the consequences of your work. You have to be considering the consequences while you're doing it. And so part of my criticism of the New York Times, and criticism feels like way too much of a weak word right now, is that I think the work they're doing on Israel and Palestine right now is actually doing harm. It's actually contributing to misinformation. It's factually false. It's bad reporting. You can't describe displacement as migration. You can't describe Israeli settlements in your journalism as controversial when they are illegal under international law. It's bad reporting that is is reinforcing a violent status quo. What is it like for you to sit here and say that into a microphone or Mm. to put it on Instagram in a much more graphical way, which you've done over the last couple of weeks, writing about this institution or talking about this institution Mm -hmm. for whom you accepted a Pulitzer Prize like a couple months ago. Yeah. I think it's complicated, right? Like, and it's also not complicated. I have a tendency, Max, to like want to sometimes, not all the time, this definitely wasn't my experience at 538, sometimes I want to be in places where I'm not wanted. And honestly, I I know this is going to feel really, really uncomfortable, like some kind of accusation or something, but it's part of the reason why I wrote to you to ask to be on this show. I felt like maybe I'm not wanted here, but I want to be on there because this is a phenomenal show that interviews phenomenal journalists and I want a seat at the table. And the New York Times still has this vast reach and this vast impact. And I want my journalism to be published there. And I know that I'm burning bridges, but I want to like, it's like I want to be criticising them relentlessly while continuing to work with them. And in my mind, I know it sounds messed up. There's no tension between the two. There really isn't. Help me understand that. I think they can do better than this. I think a lot of the journalists that work there are phenomenal journalists. And so for me to be relentlessly pointing out, excuse me, you use the word migration in this piece. It's actually displacement. You you use the word uh, controversial to describe settlements that are actually illegal under international law. And hey, by the way, would you like to commission me? That makes perfect sense. I'm saying you got this wrong. Let me tell you, because I'm a good journalist. I really don't see a conflict. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Can I just go back to the levity stuff for a second? Yeah. It's true that levity is all over your work. The first thing that I ever saw that you did was a, um, like a data visualization about circumcision rates. That was just like different length dicks. It's pretty funny. And lots of your stuff has been really funny. Do you think that that was like in hindsight, a way to gain acceptance and traction, not just with audiences, but with editors and Mm. journalistic institutions like was it a um I don't know was it like a safer way in no um it definitely (laughs) wasn't about editors and journalistic institutions because when I started to create those illustrations uh, I already felt like I had no respect among those editors or journalistic institutions they were lost which actually gave me freedom I think to um to explore more because I had nothing to lose so when I made that work I was working at 538 depressed again which is like a a pretty recurring through line in my career and you know I had joined this organization and very quickly saw that it was not the place for me and I was not the journalist for it. Very mutual feelings. And I started to just draw at my desk. And that was one of the first illustrations that I drew. I kind of executed it in a different way to the way that I create my work now, both um, process-wise and the final kind of style of it. Uh, I was the only writer who was a woman on full-time staff when it started. I was the only writer who was a woman. I was the only writer who wasn't American. I was the only writer who wasn't white. And so basically I was looking around myself at the data journalism that they was doing. And if they were going to zig, I was going to zag. So they were creating these very, very, very complex interactives. And I was like, let me take out like a Crayola (laughs) and a piece of paper and like do something about dick size. Um, And then I posted that to like hundred Instagram followers and to watch that grow was actually really important. Like I think social media is rightly vilified. And I also have this complicated relationship with it because it literally, it freed me from relying on individuals for my career who were never going to respect me, never going to respect me. And I needed that external validation outside of the walls of that institution. I needed every comment that was like, you're doing good work. And honestly, there's still a part of me that needs that now because I'm still not I'm still not getting commissioned every five minutes. I'm still not getting offered staff jobs anywhere. 
And I need, I need someone to be telling me, like, keep doing this. It's interesting to hear you say that because, I mean, the validation, even in the last, like, year from large cultural institutions is significant. Like, you've done an installation at the Brooklyn Museum. You're a New America fellow. You're an Emerson Collective fellow. You hosted a podcast for TED. You mm. won a Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times. Okay, let's start. Let's start there, right? Because sure. that's that's as good as it gets, right? Highest accolade. That's as good as it gets. I'm very clearly one and done. It's fine. We can talk about the Pulitzer ceremony in which any hope of getting another one was absolutely burnt to the ground. Tell me about it. Why? So, um, the piece that you won for, we should say, is about uh, Jeff, Bezos. Jeff Bezos as well. By the way, Lols is currently paying my paycheck because the TV show that I'm working on is for Amazon. <laughs> is it a conflict of interest? I don't know because I'm very clearly have no hesitation about, <laughs> about about biting the hand that feeds me. Do you very clearly have no hesitation about it? I mean, did I hold back in any way of going after that man? No, no, certainly not. So there's no hesitation. There's no. So hesitation. you did that piece after the TV show had sold, like you were. Yeah, already, yeah, yeah. I did that. You while, I did that piece while I was an hour and a, a year and a half, sorry, in to the to the job with the TV show. And it's oh, been really? Like, yeah. Gave you no pause. No, uh, no, no. Great. <laughs> I, 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 that, that seems impressive. Hard. I don't know. I like. Yeah, it, trust me, if anything, the times were like, <laughs> you can't go that hard. Like, you have to, like, come on, like, don't don't be so, so, so critical. So if anything, which is good that they were the ones to, like, try and rein me in. Anyway. There's a lot of levity in that piece, too. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, am the I going to tell this this Pulitzer story? I think it's actually really, really important to tell in, in this moment where I think we are having, again, some of us have been having this conversation for a really, really long time, but I think there is a reassessing, hopefully, of what are widely held beliefs about rules in journalism, right? So the New York Times has this rule about not protesting, right? Um, at the ceremony, there were several journalists um, from the Wall Street Journal who were wearing um, a pin that said Free Evan, who, who is their colleague, who is currently imprisoned in Russia. Is that a form of protest? I don't know. If it is, I'm all on board for it, right? Mm -hmm. That's your colleague who has been imprisoned. Basically, <laughs> it was very striking to me that when I arrived, the guy stood up. I don't know who the guy is. I walk into many rooms where there are a lot of white men. And to be honest with you, I'm not, it's, doesn't, it takes a lot of work to differentiate them. It was some dude at the Pulitzer's who gave me this phenomenal accolade, but I'm still willing to refer to him as a dude because to be frank, based on his speech, I don't know if he fully has my respect, right? So he got up and he said, you know, on October 7th, I was looking at my phone and I started to get all of these WhatsApp notifications and they had the Israeli flag on them. And they said, war in Israel. And I was getting the same notification over and over and over again, war in Israel, war in Israel, war in Israel. And the following days and the devastation that we've seen has really, really revealed how important verification has become. Our jobs are especially critical, especially in the context of the Israel-Gaza conflict, blah, 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 blah. 
first of all, before I'm going to come out with any conspiracy theories about anything, like to me, it's still quite telling that this guy who is, you know, sitting in these very, very senior positions, those are the first notifications that he was getting because the first notifications I was getting looked different to that, right? Mm -hmm. What was especially striking about that night is the fact that the war was framed as the Israel-Gaza war, which is already an improvement on the Israel-Hamas war, which I have seen being reported elsewhere. That is a factually misleading at best false, I would say, framing of a war in which people are dying and being arrested and being silenced in both the West Bank and Gaza. So why why are you choosing that particular framing? And actually, it's, it's a very calculated dance that journalists are frequently doing of never mentioning the word Palestine in the Western press, right? Despite the fact that this is a country that's been recognised by 138 other states, it's it's part of the erasure of Palestine to never say the word. Anyway, I was not happy about this. I uh, I don't know. I just found the whole ceremony to be really distressing and upsetting. And I felt like I, I left before it was over. I left crying. <laughs> I really felt very strongly like I deserved to be there and I didn't belong now. And I'd say that's probably been like a through line throughout a lot of my career especially at 538, by the way. That you deserve to be there. But and didn't, I didn't belong now. But you didn't belong now. Yeah. Can you help me understand why that experience made it so clear to you that you'd be a one and done? So the another elderly white man came up to me at the end. I mean, not the end, my end, not the end of the night. I was walking out and he said to me, I just wanted to um, say... The reason why we frame it as Israel-Gaza is because not everyone supports them over there. What he was trying to do was defend himself for the fact that he hadn't said Israel-Hamas. What? Which had completely misunderstood. And I was just like, what are you talking about? I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, sorry, I'm like... I was already, I'm kind of going back into the mode that I was talking to him like there, where I was just like, I, like, I, words were failing me. I was like, not everyone in Israel, not every Israeli supports the Israeli government. That doesn't mean you don't refer to it as the state of Israel. That's not the definition. And it was a really emotional experience because I felt, I felt very alone. And as I was talking to him, one of the servers, because they were still waiting to serve dessert, and the servers were like standing against the edge of the room dressed in black with like their arms behind their backs. And as I was having this really difficult conversation with him in which I'd been crying just before I spoke, which meant that my face was a fucking mess. And as I was talking to him, one of the servers who I just, I really, really hope that I can find her one day, she positioned herself so that she was behind him so that only I could see her. And she was nodding at me going, keep going, keep going. You're right, you're right, you're right. I don't know. And then I just, quite up there, I went to a dive bar. How do you feel about the award now? So when you're listing off those those things that um, that are professional recognition, the last one, which is the biggest and best, I should say, when the New York Times called me up on the Sunday to say, like, you know, you've won this, can you come into the office tomorrow um, to accept it? They were like, congratulations. <laughs> We didn't enter this piece. How did it end up winning? <laughs> really? At which point I had to say, yeah, I'm really sorry. I knew you would never enter it. So I entered it myself. And on the form where it says, did Jake Silverstein approve of this as part of the New York? I lied and said yes. Wow. That's as clear a distillation of deserve to be there and don't belong as you can get. Yeah. You submitted it yourself. Yeah. 
And afterwards they had to be like, can you send us, can you send us the submission form so we know how to talk about the entry when we're acknowledging our pride for it, like your description of why you're proud of it so that we can use it. Holy shit. And it was a really big moment within the times in some ways because, um, the design team has never received recognition before. They've been they've been shouted out when like other things have won, but for their team to like, and in this incredible new category that I think is really, really good that it exists, like the what recognition- What was the category for which you won? It's illustrated reporting, which is ditched the cartooning, which has existed since like, I believe the beginning of the Pulitzers, definitely decades and decades. And this is only, this is the second year that this category has existed. And in a way it was really great. I remember there was this feeling of like, I felt ambivalent of like, oh my God, I've made it. I've made it. Like, this is it. Yeah. But then I was like, oh no, I so haven't made it because actually the institution still doesn't get it. They're still like, what is this? And like, that means that I still have so much work to do. But again, I don't know if I'm really, I don't know if I'm fighting for the respect of those people. Because also again, like the, the racism that I have encountered again and again and again, and to be frank, again, the reporting on Palestine right now fundamentally shows a disdain for Arab life. And so, like, it's okay. You're never going to be my people. <laughs> um, and I've just got to keep on fighting to do the best work that I can. Do you feel like you need institutions like the New York Times in order to do the best work that you can? In many ways, yes. They're reporting and fact-checking. Like, they have so... They, they, they're so rich in resources. They can pay better than anyone else. Yeah. They can fact check you better than anyone else. And you want to be fact checked as a journalist. You want the support of a good editor to like read through your work and make it better. You want a good fact checker. I need the New York Times because I genuinely feel like I can do some of my best work there. I do think that the Bezos piece was one of the best pieces that I've done. And it was one of the best pieces because I was working with incredible journalists. Like they do really, really good, thorough work. And that is why I'm like pointing the fingers at them because I know that they can do better. Like the quality of journalism is better than that. There's that, there's, you know, I want to continue working with them. I pitched them a few pieces. <laughs> I haven't heard back. In the last couple of weeks? Yeah. And I, and I don't think I will hear back. It's, it's uncomfortable. I've received one commission since October 7th, right? And it was a commission to create some art for the art desk at the New York Times. And when I got the commission, I was like, hey, can we just chat on the phone? And this editor was like, listen, we've mostly just produced pieces that are in support of Israel and Israel's policies right now. We really need something else. You know, my very first question was like, it would be really, really good for you to hire a Palestinian to do this. There is something very problematic about how all of a sudden us Arab journalists have become kind of pseudo spokespeople for Palestinians. There are phenomenal Palestinian journalists. So that was my first thought. But also I'm greedy, right? So when my whole career, people have thrown me crumbs and I'm like, I'll take it, but also give me the cake. So I was like, I want this commission and I want you to hire a Palestinian obviously slightly outside of my hands. And I pitched to this editor the work that I ended up publishing on my own Instagram about how the New York Times is biased. So I pitched her three different pieces. One was about US military aid to Israel. One was about the New York Times bias in covering Israeli deaths versus Palestinian deaths. And the last one was, maybe it was about displacement, I've forgotten. 
she was like, I'm really sorry. These are all going to be a pretty hard sell, especially the one that's like talking about New York Times bias. But what we would love from you is a piece on how it feels right now to be an Arab woman journalist witnessing all of this. And in other contexts, maybe I would be tempted, right? Like it's still the New York Times. You still want the byline. Pays better than any other place I've ever worked for. It's not worth it to me. It's not worth it. And I wrote back to explain that actually that's a really, really dangerous and offensive commission. It's assuming that all of my views on this solely stem from my identity, right? And I've seen this for so many Arab journalists. We are being pushed to the opinion pages where it's tempting to go there because you get a lot more fucking latitude to say what you want to say. And I can speak a lot more freely. But that's not what this is about. The, the examples that I'm citing of New York Times failures, they are based in facts, they're not based in opinion. And I don't want to spend my future career on the opinion pages. So I'm pitching you, like there is a reason why all of my work is so deeply grounded in evidence. It comes from this place of just repeatedly not being believed in, in my personal life as well as in my professional life that I constantly have to come with receipts. Like even while I'm talking to you now, Max, I've like got my laptop next to me that if you you ask me, I'll like, what's your evidence of New York Times bias? I can be like, let me give you an article from yesterday. Let me give you these statistics. Like, there's no room for me to state what I deeply, deeply believe without having my like folder of printed documents next to me. Because I need these markers of credibility, especially in a context in which so many of us are being written off and discredited. That's why I still give a shit about the Pulitzer. It's because like, it's this shield when people are going to come after me. It's the reason why I'm probably going to do like a post at some point of the ceremony, even though it makes me cringe and even though it was such a depressing night to just remind people, oh, like I am a credible journalist, just, mm -hmm. just so you know. Um, you know, the other things that you mentioned, like these fellowships and stuff, it's funny. I, I, I Maybe it's dishonest of me to not linger on them for longer. I just forget that they even exist. It's so weird to hear you like mention them. Like they just slide right off. <laughs> just like I don't know. They, I don't really like absorb them. Is that because they don't have the same validation that the woman standing over that man's shoulder do? Is it, is it because... I mean, I know lots of people for whom successes mean very little and setbacks loom incredibly large. Yeah. What do you think it's about? I think it's that some of that recognition, including the Pulitzer as well, by the way, is inconsistent with part of my identity of like being an outsider within this industry. So to like, to, when you list that off, it makes me sound like I'm like a journalist who's like won a bunch of shit. And that's not how I see myself. I'm like, it still feels like I'm scrapping for every morsel. Do you think it will always feel that way? I think it's not just feeling. I think it's also based in fact. It's based in the fact that, again, it was me that had to contribute, to had to pitch <laughs> myself to I the mean Pulitzer. And so like, I'm still having to do that process of knocking on doors for opportunities. I applied to both of those fellowships, you know, mm -hmm. and I wrote to Ted to ask to work with them. Um, to be fully transparent, someone from the fellowship did get in touch and was like, you'd be good for this. And I said to them, I'm really sorry, I stopped applying for fellowships a long time ago. I, I can show you my spreadsheet of like where I tracked every fellowship that I applied for, like 0% success. And they were really like, mm, we're 
take you really, really, really seriously this time. And I was like, there's no point. And they were like, I swear we'll take you so seriously. So then I ended up applying. But um, it's still very much an uphill struggle. People have told lots of stories on the show Mm -hmm. over the years. I don't don't know that someone someone has come on and said that, like, I had to submit that award by myself. Where does that desire come from in you to tell me that story? See these, so on the walls around us, I really wanted to do the interview here because I wanted to, like, pull up some kind of artwork. And unfortunately, I don't think there's that much that's relevant to what we're talking about right now. But there are these backgammon boards, right? And they're backgammon boards that I've um, designed. I'm in the process of painting them. They're about various things. This one here, this red one, is based on a Jewish prayer that a friend of mine told me about that I just, I could not stop thinking about it. It was phenomenal. He said, I'm sure I'm going to absolutely butcher this. He said that there are these two verses and you're supposed to keep one verse in each pocket. And one verse says, this whole world was made for me. And the other verse says, I am nothing but dust and ash. And so like this backgammon board, the triangles alternate between like a volcano, so the dust and ash and like a cross section of the world. Hmm. And I thought it was so profound because I kind of think in some ways, if you want to check in on your mental health, you can just ask which of those two forces is currently greater in my heart and in my mind right now. And I think I'm also balancing those two, right? On any given day, I can be like (laughs) dust and ash. I'm like not doing serious journalism. I'm sitting at my desk with my Crayolas. I'm like, you know, it's a a farce. Um, And then on other days, I'm like, "Mm, this is is some good stuff. This is, uh, yeah. World's made for me. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that the external messaging around me in the institutions that I've worked in has never been this world was made for you, yeah. right? It's always been dust and ash. And so I need to really channel that this world was made for me stuff as I go after awards. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's a beautiful way to think of it. I think the question I was asking was more the I deserve to be here and don't belong. Mm. That feeling, maybe to stretch it a little bit, Sure feels to me like it could leave you feeling like dust and ash. It and, does. Yeah. At times. But it would also, I think for many people, make speaking out publicly about those institutions feel impossible. In some ways, yes. But it's also like, it's really hard. Like, is it possible to ever, on an individual basis, right? Have you ever respected someone who didn't respect you? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, Max, yeah. that out. You should... yeah, probably. <laughs> Maybe that's something for you to address. Yeah, I don't know. That, that, that's, that, that can be my own stuff. <laughs> like, there are, there are, without a doubt, risks in the way that I'm speaking publicly. But I also just don't want to overstate them. If the New York Times never hires me again, I will be gutted. I really will. And it will have an impact on my career. And I will know that I didn't hold back from sharing really important facts at a really crucial time. And that weighs on my mind way more than the professional opportunities, truly. I know that sounds like I'm trying to, but I just really mean it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like anything. About okay. it. That, that, <laughs> that's the math. I, I'm, I think what I'm trying to understand is how you arrive in that place and whether it feels different now mm. than it has previously. I don't know. You know, I, I think working at 538 really changed me in so many ways. And it's hard. It's kind of hard to articulate them. It's interesting, you know, like after, so years later, 
several journalists of colour, including Farah Chidea, who was like one of the first people to just be really outspoken and brave in describing the racism that she experienced within that institution and particularly from Nate Silver. I received a few emails from white colleagues and I, there's one in particular that kind of sticks in my mind. This guy was just saying like, I saw it, like I saw the way that you was being treated and I saw that it was racist and I saw that your ideas weren't valued and I saw that you wasn't respected and I didn't do anything and I'm sorry. And it still counted for so much because there's something about the Arab experience, right? That is like, we're a pretty fucking small community over here. Like, it's not about fighting for representation because if we're a newsroom of 25 people and I'm there, you've filled the quota, right? Percentage wise, we're good, we're done. So it's not about a numbers game. And it's it's quite inherent to the experience of being an Arab in many, many different places that you are quite likely to be on your own. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know. It's just had to be like a, a form of my survival to just to listen to some kind of inner compass for what I believe is right. I think what you were just saying helps explain how my like uh, ticking down your resume of accomplishments for the last 18 months, how those slide off. Can you articulate to me where the motivation to keep doing it and stay a part of it comes mm-hmm. from? Even like saying staying a part of it, I don't know if that really resonates with me because I don't know a part of what exactly, because I don't really feel like I'm fully within this institution. Right. You deserve know? to be there, but don't belong. Yeah. So the desire to continue is I do actually really enjoy what I do. I really do. Um, and I find it immensely rewarding. And again, this sounds so cheesy and so like, not even just cheesy. I think it makes me sound very shallow and very vain. But the messages of of support that I get mean a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, again, literally, I could open up right now if you want to do it, like my Instagram, and it will be like messages from right now. It's a lot of messages actually from Palestinians or Arabs being like, thank you so much for like continuing to share these facts. Um, That gives me motivation. I'm also just absolutely incapable of being still, which I really don't don't take as a source of pride or anything to brag about. Like, I'm just... um, I'm in constant motion. It's not a good thing. Um, so yeah, it's what I what I know how to do and I just kind of do it. I work all the time, all the time. Do you know where that comes from? I am exploring that in therapy. It was definitely modelled to me growing up. Almost that, I don't know, there's just an unwillingness to, to sit still. I think it almost feels like rest is sinful, which is fucked up. Yeah. My parents were ridiculously hardworking, my mum especially. Your mom looms pretty large yeah, for you. Yeah, I've heard you talk about her a lot. There was a thing I heard you say in an interview that um, you don't really believe in advice. Someone asked me last night, they were like, can I be your mentee? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> they looked so crestfallen and, I, and they were like, why? And I was like, I don't take advice and I don't give advice. What can I give you? And they were like, I don't know. And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know. I've got nothing. Can you help me understand where your um, position on advice comes from? Do I seem like the kind of person who takes advice, Max? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, probably not. So how dare I dish it out? Yeah. Everyone's just fucking scrambling through the reeds, just trying to find their way. Everyone's making it up all the time. Yeah. You feel like you're making it up all the time? What do you mean by making up? Making up implies falsehood. I don't think that. I, I agree with like this idea of improvising and constantly, yeah. I guess like um, maybe another way of asking that is like, 
How often do you feel certain? Very, very, very rarely. And I think that actually it's one of my critiques of data journalism is that very often it has this veneer of additional certainty, right? And that's how Nate Silver got so much of his success was like, he would reframe his certainty as being like, you know, this candidate has a 95.4% chance of winning. So he's got that little cushion in there, right? But like 95.4% still implies certainty. If you look at the weather forecast and it says there's a 95% chance of rain tomorrow, you're, you're going to fucking pack your umbrella, right? And I think that it really terrifies me, this notion that numbers are fundamentally more certain and more accurate than other forms of information. And that's the reason why I hand draw all of my work. So the process, just to describe it a little bit, is I can show you, I like um, create these hand-drawn illustrations, ink on paper, I scan them, and then I digitally Photoshop them so they line up with whatever computer-generated graphic there might be. So they're as accurate as any graph. But I want that when you're looking at them, there feels like there's this degree of imprecision in there because it just is the nature of our world around us. So to come back to your question, like this whole world is so uncertain and that's what makes it so fucking terrifying. And that's why people want to like... Look at numbers, look at horoscopes, you know, mm -hmm. speak to their mums. <laughs> and sure, do all of those things while also acknowledging that it's all uncertain. Do you feel certain now? About what? Well, you were saying that you've basically like put the rest of your work on hold. Mm. Because reporting on and producing work about Palestine feels like the only thing you can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, do you feel certain about that? I don't feel certain about it in that I have no idea what the outcomes of that work are going to be. Um, I feel clarity that that's what I need to do. And clarity and certainty are different things. Do you feel clarity a lot of the time? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. And I think that, again, when you're part of like any marginalised community, that clarity is constantly called into question. And again, I think that's really, really clear when it comes to Palestine and Israel, right? Like if you have a sense of moral clarity that the current actions of the Israeli government are inhumane, you're going to be confronted with a lot of questions that are an effort to undermine that moral clarity. And so it's really critical that you make sure that that clarity is informed, that it's well-educated, that you have the facts ready to go, and also that you have to hold on to that clarity. You really do. And that requires so much work. And that's why, again, it's, it's been so beautiful to be in these places with other Arab journalists where we're not going to necessarily face um, the same kind of hostile questions. And actually, it means that we can kind of move move our conversation forward mm -hmm. in a way. Do you know what I mean? Where you can like- You don't get... just have to stay in the first Exactly, step. exactly. And so you're not having, we're not having uh, conversations between us about like whether or not it's fair game to like target children. It's even upsetting to describe some of the things that are being called into question. But yeah, it's a relief. It's really a relief to be in some of those spaces. And when you come out of those spaces- yeah. And confront the big, awful world again. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel a responsibility to speak on people's behalf? Do you feel a tension around doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I do feel a tension. I don't want to be a spokesperson for anyone. Like, I really, really don't. And that's part of, like, the very shit position that virtually everyone who isn't a white man in journalism is asked to speak on, right? Is to speak on behalf of some community at some point. I don't want to do that. And I think it's, by the way, especially problematic right now where I'm getting these, you know, 
I'm, I'm feeling this desire to speak on Palestine where I, I don't even know if a lot of people are aware that I'm not Palestinian. Maybe people are assuming that I'm Palestinian, right? And I think Palestinian voices should absolutely be at the foreground of every conversation. And I would also say that people are explicitly asking me to speak louder and to speak more frequently. And I'm, and I feel a responsibility to, to do so based on those requests. All of the people who are telling me to sit down and shut up are people who are also sending me DMs, um, calling Arabs dogs, saying, let's start a GoFundMe to get you to Gaza. Um, it's just a really, it feels like a really unsafe time, not just professionally, but also in your personal life where you're doing this dance, where you're looking someone else in the eyes and being like, where are you at? Do you think that you're going to find a place in journalism where you feel like you belong? I'm reading the editorial pieces right now from different organizations, right? Different newspapers, different press outlets. I find it astonishing that we, our independence and our like neutrality is called into question when we sign a letter in support of Palestinian human rights, but you can write an editorial that is about Israel's right to defend itself and you're still good to be editor in chief somewhere, right? Those editorials make it very, very clear for me that not only do your standards of journalism fall down when it comes to Israel and Palestine because you're not representing the facts correctly, but also this is an institution that doesn't really value Arab life in the same way that it values white life. I want to say that like, there is a demand on so many people who are marginalised and who are working in newsrooms to be absolutely meticulous in our transparency of our experiences and how we got to here. And I actually think that the same thing should be demanded on the part of a lot of white journalists. There are so few Arab journalists, let alone Palestinian journalists, working for North American news organisations, UK news organisations, Western news organisations, period. And this is something I'll say now that I would have never dared to say before, in a place like the New York Times, I would wager, I wish I could find data on this, I would wager there are fewer Arab journalists than there are journalists who have done birthright. And this is part of my question about protest, right? Why is it that for you to sign a letter saying you support Palestinian human rights means you are no longer a credible journalist, your neutrality is under question? But if you have gone on an all-expenses-paid trip to Israel by the Israeli government, with the stated intention of fostering better relations, better sympathy for the state of Israel, your objectivity is not under question. It should be a fair question, if you're watching somebody do reporting on Israel and Palestine, to wonder if they went on birthright, just as it's a fair question to ask me if I have ever been to Israel and Palestine. The answer is yes to both. And also, I would say, by the way, not everyone leaves a birthright trip with a rosy tinted perspective on the state of Israel. That is also true. What I hear you saying is there are unequal levels of transparency. Yes. And yes. that there are ways of equalizing it. I think that's exactly right. In some ways, I don't even resent the scrutiny that I'm being held to. In some ways, what I resent about it is that other people aren't being held to the same standards. And actually, if my white colleagues were held to the same standards, I think the whole industry gets better. So, no, I don't really see a natural place for myself anywhere right now. I really don't. The Guardian has been really, really good to me. And I'm not just saying that because 
I wouldn't actually say the Guardian. I don't like referring to institutions as a whole. I don't really feel any particular like any particular anything towards the Guardian. I just have a lot of colleagues there that I really, really respect and who I feel like respect me too. And that has felt like a, a pretty safe space in some ways. I don't know. I don't know. I appreciate you thinking it out loud with me about it and taking all of this time and uh, writing me an email to come on the show. And I feel like since you did, the least I can do is make sure before we actually go, is there anything that you want to talk about that yeah. I haven't asked you about? <laughs> so much stuff, Max, so much stuff. We, we, I mean, I really, really do hope that I get to... Uh, be a little bit indulgent and get the opportunity to come back and talk about the book once it's done. When the I'm book gonna, is out, yeah. you're coming on. Okay. I'm asking you in much more depth about how you do this stuff. I'm asking you about the TV show. I'm asking you about how you balance this stuff. I have so many questions for you and we're going to do thank you, Max. a different episode when um, this book is out. And also you. I'm going to ask you a lot of uncomfortable questions about money. I have a list of questions oh, that I wow. wanted to ask you about money. Oh, but I'll do when the okay, book comes okay, out. that'll make more sense then. It'll make more sense then. But for until now, then, here. Until then, can I do a shout out to some journalist who I would really love, especially while, like you know, this <laughs> this world is in flux and a lot of people's jobs aren't necessarily. Um, it is very, very important to shout out journalists who I like, respect, and admire right now. I'm going to start with Montadra Zaidi, who was the Iraqi journalist who threw his shoes at George Bush. Love, 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 love. Asmat Khan, who I think has done the podcast, yep. right? Yeah. Yusur Hello, Jasmine Hughes, gonna shout out Jasmine Hughes. You know, the whole team, honestly, that worked on the on the magazine project with me, who were incredible, incredible. Kate LaRue, Claudia Rubin, Gail Bickler, Annie Jen, Victoria Escobar, Jake Silverstein, Christian Smith, <laughs> Stephen Stern, Adrian Green, and Willie Staley. Um, and also Amanda Holpark at the time, so I used to work with before. She didn't work on that particular project, but anyway, love Amanda Holpark. And while I'm shouting out like these incredible journalists, I'd also like to call out journalists who I think have very clearly stated a Zionist position and align themselves with white supremacy and a general disdain for uh, Arab life. Nate Silver being one of them. Also Marty Perrette, who I'm going to quote, because I kind of love the flagrancy of it, right? He used to own the New Republic. He said, in uh, reference to Iraq, I believe, I actually believe that Arabs are feigning outrage when they protest what they call American or Israeli atrocities. And the word atrocities is in uh, quote marks. They are not shocked at all by what in truth seems to them not atrocious at all. It is routine in their cultures. That comparison shouldn't come for us as Americans. We have higher standards of civilization than they do. And the multi-practices of the world, like he's no longer practicing journalism, he just published a book, and he's still sitting on the board as a permanent trustee at Bard College, right? And we're seeing actually a lot of colleges really, really struggling to state an opinion about what is happening. Colleges that should, in theory, right, be at the foreground of being very, very outspoken about international human rights abuses when it comes to other parts of the world. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, these guys, when they retire, very often become professors or they sit on boards in places. And I hope to try to salvage some kind of remotely positive note to end on. I hope that one of the things that will change in journalism in the months and years ahead is an absolute demand for the same transparency within institutions as that we request outside of them, right? So actually, the Nate Silvers of the world should not be allowed to just write a piece on Israel and Palestine without having their previous work on the region be brought up alongside it 
as as evidence of where they stand. And then the other thing that I kind of want to say, which is still in the realm of the super uncomfortable, but it's just like talking about like these institutions and again, thinking about this podcast, maybe this feels really, I wonder how much you think of yourself as being an outsider because I listen to this podcast in a way, sometimes it feels like my nose is pressed against the glass and I'm like looking in. And I will say that like, sometimes, not always, sometimes the podcast start with like, hey man, hey man. And like a little bit of a summary of like the people that you have in common. That was particularly like on the Claire Malone episode, listening to like, mm-hmm. here are all of the friends that we have in common and here's what they say about you. I don't think we know anyone in common. I, even though we've both been working in this field for a really long time in the same city. And I think that, I, the reason why I want to say that is because I think sometimes I describe this as a sense of feeling, of like feeling like an outsider, but that's me kind of acquiescing a little bit to a little bit of like this thing of like it being feelings, but it's also based in fact, you know, like I am also an outsider in many ways. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I certainly hope it didn't feel like I was implying that you shouldn't feel that way no this is me from a perspective of having like i'm constantly in defense mode right like i'm constantly like you didn't do anything to imply that but i'm like just so you know just so you know it's not just in my head (laughs) no 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 i i I think i think that's true i mean and i think it's a thing about at least for me personally i won't speak for evan and aaron the guys i host the show with but for me personally i think part of what's been strange about the experience of doing the show was that i did feel like it at the beginning and don't feel like it now Mm. and like it the show for me started as a way of like getting in, in the room in mm-hmm, some way, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. even though it was like in this kind of total sort of fanboy way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like I was in the room. Yeah. I think that's actually a really interesting parallel between us that we've both had professional success that doesn't necessarily register all of the time or a part of our identity hasn't quite caught up with it. But actually, there's a responsibility on both of us. While I'm deflecting all of these like successes, actually, there's a responsibility for me to acknowledge the power that comes with it, that I do have more of a, you know, like, yeah. it comes with a responsibility. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I have feel like I, uh, I feel that have learned it in multiple ways yeah. over the last several years, like, have actually like made a real point to stop, particularly with younger people, stop like deflecting and self-deprecating mm. so much even though it it, it feels, feels real yeah, to me yeah. but it's it's not representative yeah. to them or really factually yeah. you know and it's it's a disservice you know i think that's true and i think i'm thinking cringing honestly back on last night and people being like you're so successful and me being like no i'm not if i'm not successful then what does it feel like for them who's starting out with like honestly totally. like I, I think you're right it's not it's not fair to them Did we do it? Did we do it? We did it. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to everyone at Vox with whom we make the show. And thank you so much to Mona. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, 
Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.